Well, good afternoon, friends. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to the book of Ruth, or some of you, I think, have these electronic devices, so please turn on your Bible, which seems to me like the mark of the beast or something, but um, you're going to need a Bible, so please, if you would open to the book of Ruth, that's where we'll eventually get. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. As Christians, as students, as potential scholars, we often lose sight of the fact that in giving us the Bible, God's burden is to tell us a story. Beginning in Genesis 1, concluding in Revelation 22, we move from paradise to paradise. From creation to recreation, from the Garden of Eden to the new heavens and the new birth. The Bible is not, I would suggest to you, an inspired book of virtues. It is a book that tells a story. I've begun to use this as an introductory discussion with regard to gospel conversation. You know the story of the Bible? You know the story of the Bible? And very often I'll get a response back like, I thought there were many stories of the Bible. And of course there are. But we only understand those stories aright when we understand them as subplots in the larger and primary storyline that God seeks to communicate to us. And that is God's purpose to save the human race through his son Jesus, introduced to us, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. Now, brothers and sisters, I think it's probably safe to say that literary genre may be the most underdeveloped aspect of evangelical hermeneutics. And there is a lot we could say about literary genre, just generally. We don't have the time to do that today. Um, but, but we thought we would take a particular aspect of biblical literature and think about how we would preach it in fidelity to the text and then thinking about where it fits into the overall storyline of the Bible. So we're going to concentrate really on Old Testament narratives. And to summarize everything, I would just like to give you three interpretive and homiletical helps for preaching narratives, okay? Three interpretive and homiletical helps for preaching narratives. Here's the first one. Narratives are historical accounts that have been shaped by theological agendas and cast in artistic forms. Let me give that to you again. Narratives are historical accounts that have been shaped by theological agendas and cast in artistic forms. There's a very, very helpful book, not an easy book, and not an inexpensive book, a very helpful book by Meyer Sternberg entitled The Poetics of Biblical Narrative. And in that book, Sternberg shows that biblical narratives are shaped by three great principles, three features that are at work in the construction of biblical narratives, what he calls the ideological, the historiographical, and the aesthetic What does he mean briefly by the historiographical? He means that the recorded history of the Bible is true history. 
that what we have recorded for us is an accurate description of what actually happened. It's one of the characteristics of the biblical narrative. I won't seek to establish that. He then moves on to talk about the ideological. What does he mean by this? He means that biblical history is not communicated neutrally. Biblical history is not communicated dispassionately, that biblical history is a committed history. It's accurate, to be sure, but it is driven by a theological agenda, and you need to discover what that theological agenda is um, so that that story will have its full impression upon you. Biblical history is designed to be effective. It has been designed to produce a response which is the reason why sometimes maddening for those of us who are preachers and expositors, which is why it's maddening at times that the burden of the Bible is not to tell us every single thing that happened at any one point in time, rather that the inspired writers are making choices about what to include and what to exclude. Now, again, that doesn't mean that biblical history is untrustworthy. Um, Could you imagine, for example, what it would have been like to meet a Jew who manages to escape Auschwitz before the story of Auschwitz is really known? He comes to the West. Would you expect that he would talk about his experiences coldly and dispassionately, without feeling, without emotion? Absolutely not. But are we to infer then that his history should be held in suspicion precisely because he is passionate about it? Of course not. Everything he says may be perfectly true. And in the same manner, you see, the biblical writers admittedly are writing as committed believers. In the case of the gospel writers, I know we're talking about Old Testament narrative, but in the case of the gospel writers, they are writing as Christians, and thus their history is a committed history. Moreover, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, their choices of what to include and exclude are driven by specific theological agendas that they want to achieve. You know this from the end of John's Gospel. You know this from the beginning of Luke's Gospel. You know it from the way Matthew uses the Old Testament. Do you really expect these guys to be dispassionate and neutral about the death and resurrection of the eternal Son of God? That would be blasphemous. So when critics say that the history recorded by the biblical writers is suspect precisely because it is ideological, they are profoundly mistaken. It is a confusion of categories to my way of thinking. Thirdly, says Sternberg, biblical narratives are aesthetic. To say it more simply, history as it's contained in the Bible is story. A biblical narrative is not a mere chronicle. Just the facts, ma'am. It's the telling of history with a distinct literary artistry. I've recently finished preaching through the first 15 chapters of Acts. I've referred to it as an apostolic docudrama. Its design is to inform, to educate, to illuminate but also to motivate and entertain. So you think of something like the Ken Burns Civil War series. Have you ever seen that? Ken Burns doing baseball, 
Ken Burns doing the history of jazz. It is highly informational, it's educational, it's illuminating, but it's also designed to motivate and to entertain. And so in biblical narratives, there are structural devices like inclusios. I may show you one a little bit later in Genesis 39. Literary devices like chiasms that serve to reveal the main focus of a passage or a paragraph. For example, you may very well know that Isaiah 53, the last paragraph of Isaiah 52, all of Isaiah 53 is built on a chiastic structure, and that tells you something about how to interpret it. As in all storytelling, biblical narratives display character development. That is to say, the character of a person is not usually established by propositional statements. Samson was lustful. Saul was jealous. Moses was bad-tempered. No, it's revealed as the story itself unfolds. As the storyteller notes how this person interacts with people, what kinds of things he says, how she responds to circumstances, the choices that they make. Biblical stories have plot development. Everything is going along terrific, and then boom, conflict emerges, escalates into a crisis, a potential solution is hinted at, and finally comes the settled resolution. Well, my friends, you see, there is an artistry in all of this, an aesthetic dimension, and it seems to me that if your preaching doesn't capture this, you're making a huge mistake. I mean, every genre has its own rhetorical impact. You don't get that same kind of impact when you're preaching Romans. You don't get that same impact when you're preaching the Psalms. You don't get that impact when you're preaching the Revelation. You need to understand that each genre, part of its value is it has its own rhetorical impact. And narratives certainly do that. We'll talk a little bit about that. Now, you think of this story of Ruth. We don't have time. Had we had we more time, I, I think we would have just read the whole thing out loud right here. I'm going to assume that you're acquainted with this story. People, Christians and non-Christians, have referred to it as a masterpiece of storytelling. Daniel Block, the Old Testament scholar, refers to the book of Ruth as one of the finest pieces of storytelling in all of ancient literature. One writer has referred to it as, quote, the perfect example of the storyteller's art. And its literary features bubble to the surface with great ease when you start looking for them. It's one of the best structured books in the entire Old Testament. It's made up of four major sections, with each of those sections neatly divided up into three subsections. I'm not going to tell you where they are. I'm going to leave that to you, but just knowing that they're there, you'll find them. Each of these four sections is nicely rounded off with a summary statement, but a summary statement that, like a hinge, swings you into the next section, so that, like the series 24, if you preach it with sensitivity to that literary feature, your people ought to be left every single week with a sense of being tantalized and saying, you can't stop now. Now, the difference in my mind between expository lecturing and expository preaching is expository preaching needs to be a self-contained thing every single Sunday. You know that there weren't people, the people are going to be here today that weren't here last week, and not going to be here next. Every sermon needs to be self-contained, but that's not to say that you can't leave people longing with the desire to come back next week. That's how Ruth is structured. You'd be silly, it seems to me, as a preacher, not to exploit that. 
This is a story filled with ironies. Bethlehem means house of bread, and yet this is a place struck by famine. A family moves to Moab, a land that worships fertility, but there the men die and the women remain barren. The head of this family is a man named Elimelech, meaning my God is king, and yet this very man turns his back on the distinct land given to him by God. When the matriarch uh, leaves Bethlehem, she is known as Naomi, sweetness, pleasant. Ten years later when she returns, she takes a new name, Mara, bitterness. Ruth is a Moabite. What do you know about Moabites? A people group whose beginnings was the product of an unlawful relationship, an incestuous union between Lot and his daughter. They were a people who eventually led Israel into idolatry, and thus they were cursed by God. And yet, irony of ironies, it is a Moabitess who enters into a relationship uniquely ordained by the law of God, the law of the kinsman, and who becomes an instrument used by God to lead his people back into covenantal faithfulness. And by the way, if you read this story, you'll quickly notice that it keeps taking you back to Bethlehem. Begins in Bethlehem, moves to Moab. Back to Bethlehem. Out to the field, back to Bethlehem. Out to the threshing floor, back to Bethlehem. Out to the town gate, back to Bethlehem. Huh, what's the big deal about Bethlehem? What good thing could come out of Bethlehem? What's most obvious, however is the literary parallels between the beginning and ending of the story. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges judged. Now, by the time this is written, everybody understand what this means. It means there is no king. Keep reading. There was a famine in the land. There is no food. Keep reading. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Verse 4, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. There is no son. No king, no food, no son. And we're left wondering as the story opens up, what kind of covenant-keeping God is this? I mean, remember all those wonderful promises? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. What kind of covenant-keeping God is this? How does the book close? Well, you know it. In a great reversal. A son is born, food is provided, and now, most importantly, there's a king. Everything that was once absent has now been provided, and the faithfulness of Yahweh, the God of the covenant, has been vindicated. So, uh, throughout the story, we learn some things about God's providence, his faithfulness to the covenant people, even at those moments when it seems that he is most disengaged. We learn about our need to persevere and to trust. We learn about the glory and the grace of God that extends even to a Moabitess, despite the fact that the law says that Moabites were cursed to the tenth generation. All of those things we learn, and we need to preach those things. However, beyond that, bigger than that, 
is the fact that we've just been introduced to the Davidic dynasty. The last five verses, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Is that where we close up our Bibles and say, what a great story? No, we ask ourselves, huh, whatever happened to this David? Did everything end with David? Was he Israel's final king? Israel's ultimate king? No, friends. On the plane of redemptive history, it begins to point us toward Jesus Christ, great David's greater son. And just to prove to you that this is no accident of history or the wild imaginations of my mind, let me ask you, how does the very first gospel begin? With a boring, seemingly irrelevant genealogy except to say that it's not boring and it's not irrelevant because among some very other things, Matthew includes Ruth in the Messianic line. In fact, what Matthew does is he takes his last little paragraph of Ruth, cuts it out of Ruth, and jams it right in the middle of his genealogy. This right here is a part of the storyline of Jesus of Nazareth. And because of that, it's a part of our storyline. And if you don't preach that, then your treatment of this text is less than Christian, even if you define every noun and parse every verb perfectly. What I would urge you to understand is, until you point to Jesus, now we can talk about when you get to Jesus, that's a huge issue too, but until you point to Jesus, this right here, with all due respect, is nothing more than a synagogue sermon, a Jewish sermon. A bit of midrash, perhaps? And you've missed the fact that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. So it's important then, and I'm skipping ahead of myself just for a second, not only to see the literary structure of the small parts and the literary structure of the whole, but also to see where this book fits into the Old Testament and then finally into the entire canon. So one of the questions you need to ask yourself, friends, is how would the Bible be less than what it is if the book of Ruth was suddenly torn out of it? How does this story function in the telling of the overarching story of the Bible, God's plan to save the human race through his son, Jesus Christ? Brothers, I want to tell you, I am happy to affirm the doctrine of biblical inspiration without reservation at all. I have never, by the grace of God, I've never even been tempted to doubt that. But you need to appreciate, friends, that we don't have 66 distinct volumes, separate volumes, sewn together in one volume, simply because they bear the quality of divine inspiration. 66 disrelated volumes? That's not what we have in the Bible. Part of what establishes the doctrine of inspiration is the fact that this is ultimately one story that God is telling. I find that far more compelling than a kind of evidential apologetics that come from a Josh McDowell or a Ravi Zacharias, by the way, which have very little effect in the minds of postmoderns today. I think this is one of the strongest and most compelling um, reasons to believe in the doctrine of divine inspiration. We have one story going on from Genesis to Revelation. All of that then brings me to the second 
interpretive and homiletic help. Um, you can keep your finger in Ruth. Turn to Luke 24. Not because I have anything to tell you about it that you don't already know, but just to enjoy it. Here's the second point. Narratives, like the entirety of the Old Testament, have been designed by the Holy Spirit to point us to Jesus Christ. You know this scene. Oh, I love this scene. huh? Notice chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. By the way, nobody really knows where Emmaus is, even to this day. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And this is a phenomenon that you know from reading the post-resurrection accounts, that somehow, somehow related to the glorified body of Jesus, people couldn't recognize him unless he willed to reveal himself to them. So they are kept at this point from recognizing him for who he is. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? C.S. Lewis, in speaking about his conversion, talks about God as the great angler, like a fly fisherman, making that trout rise to the surface, teasing, teasing, drawing out, This is a part of Jesus' pedagogy here. He knows the answer to each question that he's asking. They stood still, their face downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. There may be something of a chauvinistic shot here. You know how emotional women get. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Oh, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now watch. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow. I would suggest that this is probably not the best approach for you to take with your congregations. Okay, Jesus have, has obviously not taken the Dale Carnegie course, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You guys are dim-witted and thick-headed. But here's what I find astounding. Jesus chastises his men not for not knowing something they could not have known, but for not knowing something they should have known. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
You know what he's saying? Aren't you guys reading your Bibles? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There you got the whole Tanakh right there, all of it. Then he opened their minds. Here's the point, guys, you see? It's the only way we're going to appreciate the Christotelic, Christocentric, whichever word you prefer, emphasis of the Bible. It can't be done apart from a divine intervention. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. At the end of the day, it's not an issue of scholarship as much as it is an issue of lordship. He told them, this is what is written. Here is the resurrected Christ giving us the sum and substance of the Old Testament. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Here is our message, Christ from all the Bible. Here is our method, proclamation. And here is our means, the power of the Spirit of God. Reminds me of... John chapter 1, since you're right there in Luke 24, turn just a couple of pages to the right. John chapter 1, verse 43. Jesus is assembling his band of disciples. We have a week of days that are set forth here in these early chapters. Verse 43 picks up the story. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Who found who? Jesus finds Philip. Jesus finds Philip. Don't forget that. Jesus finds Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found... Oh, no, no. Who found whom? Is Philip lying? No, he's speaking existentially, just like you and I do. I found Christ. I found Christ. I trusted Christ. Are we lying? No. But theologically, what do we understand? We found him because he's found us. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I find this staggering. We found the one Moses wrote about. Well, I'll tell you something, friends. I was taught you can't preach Jesus unless you find his name in the text. So, if you still believe, you obscurantists, you, in the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, as I do, you believe Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Where do you find the name of Jesus anywhere in those five books? I was taught you can't preach Jesus unless you find his name in the text. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, the one Moses wrote about? Maybe Philip is wrong. That's a possibility. Inspiration doesn't mean that everything everybody says is right. It means that the record of what people says is right. Philip could be mistaken. Turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 
39, Jesus is speaking and he is talking to the Jews, the Jewish leadership. He says, you study the scriptures. What is he referring to here, friends? The Old Testament. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Look at verse 45. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote about me. Hmm. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can't preach Jesus if his name isn't in the text. Maybe Philip was wrong. Would you suggest that Jesus could be wrong? I realize it sounds simplistic, but in my mind this does begin with an issue of lordship, not scholarship. And I think, brothers, this is what you need to give yourselves to. This is what the church needs. Not just preaching, but preaching that explains the text very carefully, the text that is in front of you in the fullness of its Christian context. Don't forget that the context of any passage is the whole of the Bible. You live now on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Contrary to some, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament has no relevance for your people. To the contrary, it means that it has even more relevance now that you can reread the promises in light of the fulfillment that has come. I am not a Bartian, okay? So don't get nervous. But I do read Bart, and I learn from Bart. Sometimes he's maddening and frustrating, and I think flat out wrong. But I learn from him. And Bart says in his book called Homiletics, all of our preaching needs to fall within the boundaries of Christmas and the day of the Lord. He doesn't mean we only preach from the New Testament. He means we can never preach from the Old Testament as though the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ didn't take place. And I was told, you put a brick wall between those testaments. I realize this issue of continuity and discontinuity is an extraordinarily complicated one. We don't want a brick wall there, nor do we want nothing there, maybe a picket fence. I'll tell you something, I do believe with all of my heart that the church will never know real spiritual recovery without a, a, a kind of preaching that is preoccupied with Jesus. This whole young, restless, and reformed movement, well, am I glad for it? Yes, but some of us have been doing this long enough to know that it is a fad that will fade. There will come a time when it is no longer cool to be reformed. I don't think revival will come by virtue of people becoming Calvinistic. I think of Calvinism the way I think of the plumbing in my home. My my home won't work without the plumbing, but when you walk into my home, you don't see the plumbing. I don't think a return to Calvinism will affect renewal. I think real revival will come when there is a preoccupation with Jesus and the gospel. Okay, here's the third point. 
and you can turn back to Ruth. Um, Third, narratives need to be understood in their ever-expanding canonical contexts. Narratives need to be understood in their ever-expanding canonical context. What do I mean by this? Narratives, Old Testament narratives, are to be understood on three levels. Whether you're talking about David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale, Moses and the Exodus, Abraham and Isaac, the first level is what we might refer to simply as the individual narrative. That is to say, narratives are true life stories about real people and real events. So the book of Ruth is about a woman. But Ruth is not the focal point of the story. Naomi is. It's her dilemma that's in view. It is her crisis that shapes the story. It is a story about a woman in a covenant community who is confronted with disaster at every turn. She lives at a time of religious apostasy, moral degeneracy, economic catastrophe, She moves to a foreign country, a different culture, with a different language, a different God. Tragically, in that strange place, her life partner dies. Her sons marry, but their wives remain barren. Then her sons die. She left Bethlehem, prosperous and proud. When she returned, she's poverty-stricken and humbled. And most of all, you read the end of chapter 1, and she is bitter against God. Very strong little chiasm there. This is what Shaddai has done. This is what Yahweh has done. This is what Yahweh has done. This is what Shaddai has done. The Almighty God, who is our covenant Lord, has done this. You've got a problem with meticulous providence. You're going to have a difficult time with Old Testament stories, friends. She's bitter against God. God took my husband, stuck the knife in. Took my firstborn, twisted it to the right. Took my secondborn, twisted it to the left. Why has God raised up his hand against me? There is a theology of complaint in the Bible. And God never chastises Naomi. Tells us something about our own pastoral processes with people who are angry and bitter. It's the stuff of real life and real people. And I want to tell you, many people to whom you preach will relate to Naomi very well, especially you have life experience under their belt. If they've had bouts of cancer, or they have wayward children, or they've lost jobs, or they've had miscarriages, or they've been the victims of car accidents. Ruth and Boaz are real people too. They serve as models of faithfulness to God. So, again, Old Testament stories have value for us. Now, unfortunately, many people, dare I say most people, use the Old Testament exclusively in this manner. Now, here is the moral of the story. Be faithful like Abraham. Be courageous like Esther. Don't compromise like Solomon. And, of course, the person who made a million bucks doing this very thing better than anybody was Chuck Swindoll. But to use Old Testament stories in this fashion alone is to miss their infinitely greater significance. So, to be sure, yes, 
at our most rudimentary level, we can see these in these stories, uh, behaviors to be avoided, faith to be imitated, wisdom to be applied. In this case, because of Ruth and Boaz, their faithfulness, a faithfulness worthy of our emulation, they become the means God uses to provide a redeemer for the widowed Naomi. By the way, that's the heart of the story, right? Redemption, 85 verses, 23 times the word redeem appears. Naomi will be the recipient of redemption by the hand of God at work in the lives of two faithful people. So again, yes, at their most basic level, Old Testament stories are true life accounts of real people and real events from which we might learn. And here's the point. The New Testament gives us warrant for reading the Old Testament like that. 1 Corinthians 10, Romans chapter 15, Hebrews 3 and 4. But God help us if that's where our use of the Old Testament narratives end. Often this kind of preaching degenerates into not much more than an exercise in moralizing. Abraham was faithful. Be faithful. Jonah was a bigot. Don't be a bigot. Samson was lustful. Don't be lustful. Very same things you can get from Dr. Phil. So, to quote our friend Brian Chappell, you watch out for the killer bees. Be like, be like, be like. It always makes me nervous when someone tells me they're doing a Life of series. Life of Abraham. Life of... So there was a second level of significance to these Old Testament narratives, what we might now call the major narrative. Not the individual, now the major narrative. And what I mean by this is, narratives are part of the greater story of God's covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. Narratives are part of the greater story of God's covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. So now read the story of Ruth in relationship to the Old Testament. On the one hand, it's a story about how God provides a redeemer for this widow. On the other hand, there is more than one widow in view. Again, as the story opens up, what's going on in the life of the nation? The narrator tells us. It's the time of the judges. What do you know about that? Bad time for Israel. One of the lowest times in Israel's history. Even the good guys are filthy. Israel, to use the language of judges itself, is God's bride, but she's gone whoring after other husbands. The priests are spiritually unfaithful. People worship idols. Everybody doing whatever they jolly well please. Despair reigns. Great darkness. And like a light motive in a piece of music, there is a refrain that appears again and again. Now in those days there was no what? King in Israel. The Lord has left Israel a widow. But what about all of God's covenant promises? So what's this story about? Yes, God provides a redeemer for this woman. But how does the story end? With a genealogy that concludes with the name of the king who would be the answer to the need implicitly announced at the beginning of this story. So there is this convergence, you see? In God's provision of a widow for Naomi, he prepares the way for a coming king who would be Israel's husband. This is not just a story about God's provision for a widowed woman. It's a story of God's provision for widowed Israel. 
And reading Ruth in this greater Old Testament context, ultimately then preaching-wise, serves this great purpose. It will display the fact that the hero of every Old Testament story is God. The hero is not David. The hero is not Abraham. The hero is not Moses. Read David and Goliath carefully, guys. The hero is God. You tell your people, be like David, and even a junior high school student will say to you, well, which David do you have in mind? The David who killed Goliath or the David who slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah? Be like Abraham. Really? The Abraham who left the Ur of the Chaldees by faith or the Abraham who twice lied about his wife, thus jeopardizing her purity? Be like Moses, the Moses who was kept out of the promised land? The heroes of the faith? Give me a breath. Throw that Get those children books and throw them under your bed. <laughs> Heroes of the faith. I mean, you see, this is the nuance of Hebrews chapter 11. Our problem is we end Hebrews chapter 11 at verse 40, but the end of the, that whole theme doesn't end until chapter 12, verse 3. So that while we are to listen to the great cloud of witnesses giving their testimony on the pages of the Bible to God and his faithfulness, we fix our eyes. On Jesus. Everyone in Hebrews 11 is flawed. Jesus is the only one who has run the race set out before him perfectly. That's why he's called the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So every Old Testament narrative is a part of the larger Old Testament corpus. And you must ask yourself, where does Ruth fit into that corpus? How would the larger Old Testament story be compromised if Ruth were suddenly ripped away? So, for example, one author has said, the first interpretive key is to recognize that the Old Testament narratives are not a loosely connected conglomeration of biographies or unrelated miracle stories, but a theological history of how God related to his covenant people. And finally then, in every Old Testament story, there is a third level of significance, what we could refer to as the ultimate, the individual narrative, major narrative, ultimate narrative. And that is, narratives contribute to the telling of the Bible's one overarching story, the meta-narrative. And that is God's gracious intention to save the fallen human race through the means of his son, Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells many stories, yes, but all of these serve the purpose of telling the one great story, the Bible's big story. I think I said it yesterday in the chapel. It's from the highest point of Revelation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that every other portion of Revelation is to be interpreted. We have the privilege of reading the Old Testament from the perspective of the new. We read the promise now in light of the fulfillment. We bring to the reading of the Old Testament New Testament glasses. And what then do we discover in the New Testament? That God has seen us in our need and despair. That for us, God has provided the greater Redeemer. That for us, God has provided the greater King that for us God has provided the more perfect husband. And all of these converge in the one man whose lineage is traced through Boaz and Ruth, King David's greater son, the man from Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. 
from every corner of the Bible, friends, it is the old, old story, and that's how we tell it. And then, and then we pivot on God's people. We turn on God's people, and we say, Do you have God's Redeemer? Is he your king? Is the husband from Bethlehem yours? Because, my dear friends, this is exactly what biblical narratives are intended to do. They not only entertain and charm, they expose and convict. They disarm us with their charm. And then they demand a decision. Do any of you know the story of Hamlet? My favorite Shakespeare play. In the middle of the story, a troop of actors arrive in Denmark and they are asked by Hamlet to perform a play entitled The Murder of Gonzago. But what Hamlet does is he composes some of his own lines, inserts them into the dialogue, oh, about a half a dozen lines, to show a murder on stage that parallels his uncle's real-life murder of his father. As the play commences and the lines are spoken, Hamlet fixes his eyes on his uncle, watching keenly, you see, for his uncle's reaction. And Hamlet gets exactly what he wants. His uncle's reaction to what occurs on stage reveals his own guilt. His uncle does, you see, what we all do in the hearing of a story. He compares his own story with the one being told. So the story on stage is told not primarily for the purpose of amusement, but for the purpose of exposure. Hamlet says, I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And that's exactly what the stories of the Bible are intended to do. They engage, and then they expose. They wheel on us. So... The prophet Nathan walks into the presence of his friend, a hypocritical king, and says, let me tell you a story. Smart dude, Nathan. David is a poet. David is a songwriter. Let me tell you a story. There were these two men in a certain town, one rich, one poor. And as the story unfolds, David is unknowingly drawn in and becomes outraged at his own sin as he sees it illustrated in the life of another. And then, when David is drawn in and hooked, Nathan pulls back the veil. You are the man. But I wonder, it's the heresy of the hypothetical, I know, but I wonder, what would have happened had Nathan never stuck his bony finger into the chest of the king? if it just told the story without application. My guess is sometime later, perhaps late at night when he was alone after everyone else had gone to bed and the palace was dark and quiet, oh, that old prophet's story would have haunted David. It's me. He knows. I'm the rich man. I've taken all that poor Uriah had. You find it interesting that Jesus never says to the Pharisees, you know, you guys are just like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Didn't need to, Luke 15. He didn't say to the priest, you guys are just like the wicked tenant farmers who killed the owner's son, Mark 12. 
Didn't have to. Good stories told well do that all by themselves. They turn on us when we least expect it. They engage us and then confront us. You always need to remember, friends, that Old Testament stories primarily are not models of morality. They are mirrors of identity. I would love to do another story. Um, I don't think we have enough time. Um, We want to leave some time for questions. Do you, or shall we talk a little bit about Joseph? We can skip questions. Maybe we can, if we'll have a little time. Uh, Turn to Genesis 39. You rather listen to the Bible than me anyway. Genesis 39. Now, you know the story. Joseph has been violently abused in Genesis 37 as a result of a passive father and jealous brothers. He finds himself sold into slavery with all of the horrors that go along with that human trafficking. That'll preach today. We get to chapter 39 and things are looking up. Finally, after all the abuse he's endured, he's the main guy in the house of the Egyptian Secret Service. Pretty sweet deal. Um, We'll come back and look at the opening paragraph, but you'll notice verse 6. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And right about now you should be saying, "Uh uh-oh, because the equilibrium in the story is about to be upset. Not that there's anything wrong with being handsome or beautiful. It isn't fair. Um, There's nothing wrong with it, however. Word has it, I've heard, that such a blessing brings problems of its own. I've never struggled with that. I mean, not like Dr. Shaddix, I'm sure. Now, we we, we read in verse 7, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph. Now, who is this woman? Well, friends, you see her every time you check out at Kroger. Or Rite Aid, or I don't know what stores you have here. She's on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine, this gal. Interviewed on all the most popular talk shows. No doubt she's very attractive. Smells of the most appealing French perfume. Manicures, pedicures, tanning salons, the latest and coolest hairstyles. And frankly, with Potiphar for a bankroll, she can afford the nicest and perhaps most alluring of clothes. My point is, she's one of the beautiful people. Her husband is the head of Egyptian Secret Service. And yet she is a walking disaster zone. She is a tragic, tragic human being, this woman. It makes me think of someone like Whitney Houston. Beautiful, attractive, talented, successful, affluent. And a tragedy of a human being. By the way, what should your systematic theology be telling you at this point? That Joseph isn't the real slave in this story. Mrs. Potiphar is a, shackle, a, a slave shackled to her sin. 
Look at how this expresses itself. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Don't confuse this for something alluring. The Hebrew here is very raw. Two terse words. This is not an invitation. This is exploitation. She notices that he's an attractive human being. And of course, friends, there's nothing wrong with that. We are not Gnostics. The idea is she looked back a second time and a third time and a fourth time in a way that's not appropriate for a married woman who wants to live in purity. And before long, her eyes have ensnared her heart and she abandons any semblance of modesty. Come to bed with me. But he refused. He said no. Now that's freedom. Freedom in the Bible is the freedom to do what God wants, something you cannot do apart from the invasion of God's grace into your life. Freedom to not sin, she's the slave. In the historic theological categories of St. Augustine, she cannot not sin. She is the original dangerous housewife, desperate housewife, whatever it is. I never... She can't say no. She can't say no. Joseph can, and he does. He is the really free human being in this story. He refuses. Why? Not because he isn't as red-blooded as the next guy. What's more, you could understand, he had every excuse under the sun. I have been lonely for so long. Never, ever, ever again just this once. God wants me to be happy and fulfilled. I've come from a dysfunctional family. I deserve a little pleasure. Or how about this one? Lord, if you don't want me to do this, take the desire away. She initiated it. She pursued me. She's a powerful woman. If I get on her good side, I might just acquire my freedom. Or how about this? I'm the head guy in the house. I can send all the other slaves out to work on the back 40. No one will ever know. He refuses. How? What I'm trying to show you is that first level of looking at Old Testament stories. How does he refuse? He appeals to the ethical, the relational, and the theological. Firstly, notice he appeals to the ethical. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me. In other words, in other words, you'll notice, you'll notice, by the way, he doesn't call him Potiphar. He calls him my master. He rightly understands the nature of the master-servant relationship, and he will not violate that. It would be wrong to do this on the grounds that everything I presently enjoy has been entrusted to me by my master. Secondly, he appeals to the relational. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me. Except... Um, does this language sound in any way familiar to you if you know Genesis 39? Turn back to verse 4. Turn back to verse 4. Joseph is in Potiphar's house. 
He found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Verse 5, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned. Verse 6, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Does that seem a little strange to you? Food? Well, doesn't want doesn't want Joseph to be able to poison him. I don't think that's it, friends. Joseph has access to every aspect of Potiphar's life. He could get at him a million different ways. Hmm. Seems strange to me. If I'm telling the story, I'm going to take note of that and leave that lingering in people's minds. Why food? Now notice that Joseph says nearly the exact same thing here in verse 9. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except... You say, stop right there. I know exactly what it is. It's food. Joseph says, He has withheld nothing from me except you. I would suggest to you that food in verse 6 is a euphemism for Potiphar's wife. And in particular for the kind of sexual satisfaction she could provide for him as his wife. Food is used on a few occasions in the Old Testament as a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Notice, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because... You are his wife. He says no to her advances because he possesses a high regard for the sanctity of marriage and the marriage bed. There is the relational response in addition to the ethical response. Now notice his theological appeal. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How does Joseph refuse when so many of us fail to refuse? He calls sin by its proper name. He doesn't call it a momentary weakness, an addiction, a mistake, the consequence of being brought up in a dysfunctional family, all terms that subtly undermine the essence of personal responsibility. He calls it a wicked thing. You don't find sin until you call sin, sin. And even more importantly, he recognized it as an offense against God. So that even if no one else ever knew, God would know. And that's what makes sin, sin. And the fact of the matter is, all the other reasons for refusing Potiphar's wife, the ethical reason, the relational reason, only have validity because of this reason. Sexual sin is not less than sin if it occurs between consenting adults. It necessitates the consent of God. Well, you know the story. Uh, William Congreve in The Morning Bride, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Joseph, because he kept his zipper up, ends up in prison. By the way, second time in this story, a garment is used deceitfully against him. And it's not the last time. You follow the clothing in this story. You follow the clothing. You follow the clothing. The clothes tell the tale in this story. Clothes keep coming up over and over again. Well, there's a concluding paragraph to this dark scene in Joseph's life. Notice, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with 
him. It's not speaking about God's omnipresence. It's talking about his covenantal companionship. He's with him to bless him. Hmm. Does that in any way sound familiar to you? It should. Keep reading. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those he held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Sound familiar to you? Verse 23, the warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Look back now at verse 2. The Lord was with We read that twice in the last paragraph. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When the master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he... Huh, opening paragraph, the Lord was with Joseph. Closing paragraph, the Lord was with Joseph. The opening and closing paragraph mirror each other. It's called an inclusio a kind of literary envelope in which you find the same sorts of themes, sometimes the very same words at the beginning and ending of a structure. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Last verse of Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the point here is that you are to read the entire passage in all of its ugliness and darkness within the frame of reference that you get at the beginning and the end, and if you don't, you're missing its emphasis. Paragraph 1, 1 to 6, the presence and blessing of God. The third paragraph, last paragraph, the presence and blessing of God. Middle paragraph, the reality and wickedness of sin. And it's structured that way, my friends, to tell you something about how to interpret life. Life for us as the people of God is lived in a sinful, fallen world that is filled with risk and danger and hardship and suffering and disappointment and pain. It's inescapable. At the same time, it is a life that is lived within the context of the presence and purpose of God so that whatever darkness is occurring in the middle paragraphs of your lives, God is there. God is work. God is at work. He has not lost sight of us. He is using, in fact, every bit of the evil against us. And by the way, have you ever noticed this pattern in the Bible? Reminds me of A.W. Tozer. Highly unlikely that God can use a man greatly unless he has first hurt him deeply. This business of humiliation, this pattern of humiliation prior to exaltation. Moses, who would one day lead two million people in an exodus, is forced to endure 40 years on the backside of a desert, being reminded each one of those days of the negative consequences of relying on his own power. Humiliation prior to exaltation. David, appointed heir apparent of the throne of Israel, the one who would be her greatest king, being forced to run and hide for many years prior from a king who lived in dread of losing his throne. Humiliation prior to exaltation. Hosea, the great prophet of God, told by God to marry a prostitute, a woman who finally leaves him and his children, and if that hurt isn't devastating enough, 
God then tells him to go buy back his wife out of slavery so that now with a broken heart, with a heart that feels just like God's broken heart, Hosea can call an adulterous nation back to her covenant husband and God. Humiliation prior to exaltation. Hmm. Remind you of anything? Jesus himself betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, rejected by the Jews, beaten by the Romans, nailed to a cross, forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, friends, I want to tell you, and you ought to say this to your people, you may not approve of God's method, but at the very least you have to say this. He took his own medicine. Humiliation prior to exaltation. Jesus is raised from the dead. Moses leads the Exodus. David rules God's people. Hosea speaks God's word. And Joseph becomes a prime minister and a savior. The Lord was with Joseph. You read that dark middle paragraph and you say, what kind of the Lord being with Joseph is that? He is the all-encompassing context in which every single thing happens to you using it to prepare you for his purpose, a purpose that at the present moment you may know nothing about. God is the hero of every Old Testament story. So all of these things, you've got to preach to your people, the importance of sexual purity, a right regard for sin, the presence of God in our trials, on and on and on. But there is more. It's a story embedded within a bigger story. Don't forget, when this was first written, there were no chapter divisions. Nowadays, in our devotional reading, our Bible reading, we read chapter 38. Tomorrow, we forget all about chapter 38, read 39. Day after that, we forget about 39 and read 40. So we only have this hazy sense of connection. How do 48, how do 38, 49, 39, and 40 all get tied together? So you need to ask yourself, you're looking at 39 on a Sunday morning, what would the book of Genesis look like if chapter 39 was ripped out? Suppose you just went from 38 to 40. That makes sense? So not only must you ask what the chapter means, you must ask what this chapter contributes to the larger narrative of the Joseph cycle, 37 to 50, the narrative of the entire book of Genesis, the narrative of the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, and finally the entire Christian canon. Well, as soon as you begin to ask all those kinds of questions, things begin to explode in your mind. 39 follows 38. In 38, Judah, the tribe from which Messiah comes, is busy sleeping with his daughter-in-law. So in some cases, some sense, 38 and 39 are a foil to each other. One man in lushness and plenty sleeping around, another man in impoverishment and slavery being faithful. So morally, there are some even lessons there. There are even some lessons there, aren't there? But on the other hand, 39 is a setup for 40 and following. You've got to get Joseph in prison. And because he's in prison for two years, in due course he meets the butler and baker of Pharaoh. And because of that, he's introduced to the Pharaoh in his dreams. And because of that, he ultimately becomes prime minister of Egypt. And because of that, he institutes some famine control. And because of that, the promise to Abraham that all the, that, that in, in him and his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed is partially fulfilled. And because that famine control is applied, there is the salvation of that little family, 70 folk in all, up in Canaan, who come to Egypt, there is the fulfillment of Joseph's youthful dreams as his family bowed down to him on two or three occasions. 
all of that in response to the promised seed of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, the preservation of that family means that the Messianic line will extend into Exodus and all the way up to Jesus, including all of the saving benefits and blessings that now accrue to us, because in this case, dear old Joseph kept his zipper up and didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife. God's providence working behind the scenes to bring about the creation of a nation and the preservation of the Messianic line. How so? The Lord was with Joseph. Yes, 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 in prison. And of course, we turn to our people and then say, don't forget, the same Lord who was with Joseph is the same Emmanuel who now says to you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what I'm talking about is ever-expanding canonical contexts. I don't think I've made anything up here, guys. I don't think I've introduced anything extraneous to the text, anything at all like an allegory. You put me in a catatonic state, I would never allegorize. You don't have to do that to be a Christian preacher of the Old Testament. All I've done is I've kept rereading the chapter, first in its context, then in terms of its own literary structure as an entire chapter, then in terms of its more immediate chapters, then reading it as it relates to the book as a whole, and then reading it in terms of the entire canon, and now you can't help but be amazed at the wisdom and goodness of God in linking all all of these things together with the direct line to Jesus, the cross, and my salvation because this guy didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife. And then we look to the men of our church and we say, you need to come to terms with the implications of your obedience. What that will mean for your wife and your children and your church and your community. How do you know that you're not raising the next Jonathan Edwards in your own home? It's what makes this story Christian. It's what adds dignity to it. And I'll tell you, and I'll, I'll be done. It is so much more potent than simply using this as a text, as an opportunity to rail on the men of the church about the evils of Internet pornography. Have you figured out that doesn't work? Here is the gospel motivation for why they shouldn't engage in such things. And all I'm trying to say to you, long way, sorry. Anything less in my view is sub-Christian preaching, even if it comes from the Bible itself.